Good morning, family of God. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Luke, chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. And they read like this. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him. It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning again, church family. It is a joy to uh, be able to preach the word uh, with you this morning uh, in English. Uh, it's, a, uh, it's an opportunity to uh, uh, hear from the Lord again, and so we're excited to hear uh, from Jesus this morning. So I want to ask you to bow your heads one more time with me uh, to pray that God would speak to us and give us ears to hear what he would want to say to his church uh, this morning. Why don't you bow your heads with me uh, and let's pray. Our Father, I thank you so much that you are a good God. You're a saving God. You're a liberating God. That in the name of Jesus, every chain is broken. Lord, we thank you that you've given us your word. And we pray that this morning you would speak to your people. God, help me to communicate your word in a way that is uh, fitting of what you want to say to your people and uh, that is true. And I pray you give us ears to hear, Lord, and hearts that are ready and willing to uh, believe and obey whatever you say to us, Lord. Uh, guide me this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This morning we're talking about the word in the wilderness. The word in the wilderness. Jesus, we found out last week, Jesus is the son of Adam and he is the son of God. The son of Adam and the son of God. Jesus is the word made flesh. Jesus is both fully human and he is fully God. And we see that in our text this morning. You can see that Jesus is the son of Adam. He is fully human because in verse 2, he is being tempted by the devil. Don't you know that God cannot be tempted by anyone? He cannot be tempted. But don't you also know that we as people definitely can be tempted? We experience temptations every day, often every minute of the day. And Jesus is like us in that he was tempted by the devil. Second, we see he is the son of Adam. He ate nothing during those days, and when those days were ended, he was hungry. 
How many of y'all hungry right now? I could, I could eat. I mean, might as well, right? God does not have any need. God does not get hungry, yet Jesus is hungry. Jesus is fully man. He is just like us, except he's without sin. We're going to see that in a little bit. But he is the son of Adam, but he's also, praise the Lord, the son of God. Look in verse 1. We see Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit. Now, this, this phrase, full of the Holy Spirit, has been used in the book of Luke already. It's talking about people who are a spiritual people, people who are, are, are people who seek after God. But here we know that Jesus has recently in our text been baptized with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit descended on him in the form like a dove at the end of, of chapter 3. And we see that Jesus, you can tell us in a little bit, he is anointed by the Holy Spirit. Jesus is filled with the Spirit. He goes out in the power of the Spirit to bring healing, life, and love, and hope, and joy to the world. He is God in the flesh. And we see here at the end of verse 1 something that is awesome for Jesus, but that might be somewhat troubling for us, that he is led in the Spirit into the wilderness. He is led in the Spirit into the wilderness. God, Jesus doesn't do anything without the fellowship of God. And yet God leads him into the wilderness, into the desert, into the place of hunger, the place of pain, the place of desperation. That can be troubling for us, that God would lead us into a wilderness. He would lead his people, his children, into a wilderness. Let me tell you, family, over the last three years have been a wilderness. The wilderness is a place of dryness, a place where it might be hard to know what God is doing. The wilderness is a place of hunger, a place where you might feel like all your needs have not yet been met. The wilderness is a place of testing, a place of temptation. Because of the desperation. But praise God for those who are in Christ, for the people of God. The wilderness is also a place of transformation. It's a place of miraculous provision. It's a place of water from rocks. It's a place of bread from heaven. It's a place to hear from God because everything else is silent. We can thank God for the wilderness, because in the wilderness we meet God. Jesus here gives us hope in the wilderness. He gives us hope in temptation. He gives us hope when we're hungry. He gives us hope when we're craving. Now, Matthew and Mark are also going to tell this story, and as I preach this morning, I'm going to tell us some of the differences between this story and their accounts. Mark's account is very short, doesn't include the specific temptations. Uh, Matthew includes the temptations that we see here, but the last two temptations uh, are reversed. But there's a common theme in these temptations that Jesus faces. And you can read uh, scholars and theologians for ages who have commented on these these, uh, powerful uh, verses, and you can see a number of different themes that come out. Uh, it, it seems to me that 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 one of the themes that's important for us to hear today is a theme that 
is related to the haunting lie that the devil has been using since the beginning. And the lie is this, and I think, I think in most of the temptations that we face today, we're faced with this very lie, and the lie is that God doesn't love me. God doesn't love me. Now, I think Sally Lloyd-Jones and the Jesus Storybook Bible for some of this insight. I read that book with my children. But I believe this is one of the lies, and for us this morning, I think one of the most important lies that is the basis for each of these three temptations. Back in the book of Genesis, the very beginning of the Bible, we have the story of God creating Adam and Eve. And God loved Adam and Eve, and he provided everything they needed, and he gave them one commandment, and that commandment was, don't eat from the tree in the middle of the garden. Every other tree is good for food, but don't eat from that one. I want you to listen how the Jesus Storybook Bible tells this story. He says this, he says, uh, 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 Sally Lloyd-Jones says this, says, now, God had given Adam and Eve only one rule, don't eat the fruit of that tree. God told them, because if you do, you'll think you'll know everything. You'll stop trusting me. And then death and sadness and tears will come. You see, God knew if they ate the fruit that they they wouldn't think they, if they would think they didn't need him and they would try to make themselves happy without him. But God knew there was no such thing as happiness without him and life without him wouldn't be life at all. As soon as the snake saw his chance, he slithered silently up to Eve. Does God really love you? The serpent whispered, if he does, why won't he let you eat the nice, juicy, delicious fruit? Poor you. Perhaps God doesn't want you to be happy. The snake's words hissed into her ears and sunk down deep into her heart like poison. Does God love me? Eve wondered. Suddenly, she didn't know anymore. Jones continues to say, and a terrible lie came into the world. It would never leave. It would live on in every human heart, whispering to every one of God's children, God doesn't love me. Now, it's no wonder that the Greek word that's used in our text for devil is the same word used elsewhere for the word slanderer. The devil's work is to defame and destroy God's reputation in our minds so we don't trust him, so we forget that he really does love us. And you can walk through the entire Bible and into each of our lives and see the fruit of this play out. I want you to take a moment before we jump into these three temptations, and I want you to think about how this lie plays out in your life, in your specific life. What is this lie that God doesn't love you? What does that look like in your life? Maybe you face chronic pain every day of your life. And you're tempted with the lie, does God really love me if he's making me live through this? Maybe you're an older person with maybe some grandkids and you might have a child who walked away from the faith and you might say, does God really love me if he's making me suffer like this and making them suffer like this? Maybe you have a family member who over the last couple of years got really sick or who passed away too soon and you might say, does God really love me if he couldn't heal my mom or my sister or my aunt or my cousin? 
Maybe it's a job you wanted but didn't get. Maybe it's a relationship you wanted but didn't get. Maybe it's a traumatic event that you've walked through. Maybe it's a traumatic event you've watched someone else walk through. And you might say, how could God possibly love the world if he let this terrible thing happen to someone that I love? How does it play out in your life? Does God love me? Because I think if we're honest, we face this lie pretty often. The lie plays out every day in every heart. Satan wants this lie to play out in Jesus' life, too. I want to take a moment and trace what we've seen about Jesus' identity so far in the book of Luke. Luke has been reassuring us over the last few weeks that the hype is real about Jesus. He is who God said he was. Luke has told us this in a number of ways. We saw an angel come to an elderly man whose wife was too old to have kids and say, you're going to have a kid and that kid's going to prepare the way for the Lord. We saw an angel come to a virgin who and to say the Holy Spirit's going to cover you and you're going to conceive a child whose name will be called God is salvation. We've seen an army of lightning bright warriors from heaven hovering in the sky over a shepherd's field singing glory to God in the highest at the birth of one child. We saw two elderly random strangers come up to Mary and Joseph in the temple and say, we've been waiting on your son. We saw 12-year-old Jesus in the temple say, didn't you know I'd be in my father's house? We heard John the Baptist say, listen, if you think I'm cool, one's coming who's mightier than me and he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. A couple weeks ago, We saw Jesus be baptized and the Holy Spirit descend in a form like a dove on him and a voice from heaven say, this is my beloved son. You are my beloved son. With you, I'm well pleased. And last week we heard Kara read 76 names to prove that Jesus really is the son of God. And now twice in this passage, the devil comes to him saying, bro, are you really? Son of God? Verse 3, if you are the Son of God. Verse 9, if you are the Son of God, are you really the beloved Son of God? Because if you were the really beloved Son of God, I mean, if God really loved you, would you be hungry right now? If God really loved you, would he have you go all the way to the cross to get the glory you deserve? If God really loved you, wouldn't he send his angels to protect you? Each of these temptations is a variation on the slanderous lie that God doesn't really love his son. And each one is a variation on the lie that tells you and me every day that God doesn't really love us like beloved children of God. But here's the truth. Jesus' victory over Satan in the desert is yet another proof that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus succeeds where Israel fails. Jesus succeeds where you and I fail. Because sometimes we succumb to that temptation, don't we? We believe the lie that Jesus doesn't really love us. We've got to go to something else to fill the need that we have in our lives. But what Jesus does is come to us with grace again and again and say, hey, that's not going to satisfy. It's not going to satisfy. It's not going to do you the good that you think. Come to me.
All you who are weary or heavy laden, I will give you rest. I will satisfy your souls. I will give you abundance. I will fulfill every need. I will satisfy every craving of your life. Come to me. And he gives us hope in the wilderness. I'm going to look at these temptations. Talk about the first temptation. Look at the end of verse 2 and verses 3 and 4. Jesus is hungry, and the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. Now, Satan is tempting Jesus here. And it might be a question, what is he actually tempting Jesus to do? Is he tempting him to do something miraculous, like make bread appear? And the answer, obviously, with that is is no, because Jesus is going to make bread appear for like 5,000 families in just a few chapters. So that's not the temptation. What is the temptation? Well, we can discern the nature of the temptation if we go look at the story in the Old Testament that Jesus is mirroring. And the temptation here, I'll give it to you, is independent. You can live life apart from God. Jesus quotes here from Deuteronomy chapter 8. You can read the whole story in Exodus 15 through 34. And you can hear the, the uh, replay of that story in Deuteronomy 8 through 10. The context of this passage is that God's people were slaves in Egypt and God brings them out of slavery into the desert to worship him. And they're following God in the desert for 40 years. They're following this massive pillar of cloud that keeps them uh, cool in the hot desert sun. And they're following this massive pillar of fire fire in the uh, um, at night that keeps them warm in the cold desert nights. And they know that God is leading them because he's clearly physically leading them everywhere they go. But they get out in the desert. And one thing that's hard to find in the desert is water. Another thing is food. And immediately they get hungry and immediately they start complaining. And they say, God doesn't really love us because if he had, he wouldn't have brought us out here in the desert to starve. We should have stayed in Egypt. Instead of their hunger alerting them to their dependence on God, they allowed their hunger to lead them to question God and to doubt God and to say, I can do life without you. Notice, this is totally illogical. God rescued them from slavery. They're following a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. But they move from dependence to independence. And yet God is merciful. He provides bread in the desert. Each morning the people would wake up and find white stuff on the ground. Looked like dew, but if you gathered it together and baked it, it would make bread. God loved his people, so he gave them bread. But listen to how Moses recounts this event in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 and 3. He says, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you. And let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. He answers the question, why? Why? That he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Why did God humble his people, make them hunger? And then feed them with bread from heaven. He says that he did it so that they might know that God, not bread, is actually the thing that they were craving. They weren't, they weren't really longing for, for bread. They were really longing for God. 
and their craving for bread should have made them conscious of the fact that God was what they needed. The devil asks Jesus to do the same. Luke has already told us the spirit led Jesus into the wilderness, but now the devil is asking Jesus to move away from God dependence to self dependence. Instead of relying on the provision of his father, the devil tells Jesus to demonstrate his identity as the son of God by turning a stone into bread. Now, what's twisted about this is that a true son relies on the provision of his father. The way to demonstrate his identity as the son of God isn't by exercising independence. It's actually by exercising dependence. But Satan tries to twist this. But Jesus answers, quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8. He says, man shall not live by bread alone. He declares the truth that man is not created for self-dependence. Man is created for God dependence. And you and me are the same. You and me are the same. We are made for a God dependence. We're made to find our sustenance and our satisfaction, not in ourselves that we can provide for ourselves, but in God alone. Now, I think something that's helpful for us is to look back at verse 1 of our passage. It says that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. So when now Luke tells us that he is hungry, we know that he's not empty. He's actually full. He's full of the Spirit. Now, this is an important point to make because Luke has been pointing out from the beginning of his book the work of the Holy Spirit. Five times already we've seen the Holy Spirit at work in the life of his people. And now we see that Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit. So even though Jesus is hungry, he's not alone. Even though Jesus is is hungry, he's not isolated. Even though Jesus is hungry, he doesn't have the needs that, that the enemy says that he does. And so by the word of God, he is able to catch the enemy in his own lie for his own sustenance. Now, when we think about this temptation on Jesus, I want to pose a question for us. And that question is this, is what's your bread? What is bread to you? What is the thing that makes you question whether or not God is enough? What is the thing that you crave when you take your eyes off the leading of the Lord? What is the thing that you crave when you take your eyes off the leading of the Lord? What is that thing? Is it security? Did you... Pray yourself into a job, and now you go to work every day anxious because you're not, afraid, you're not sure if you're going to keep it or not? Are you trusting in that job instead of the God who gave you that job for your security? Are you trusting in popularity? 
We can curate social media so we can feel like we're supported when really the one who supports us gives us life and breath and everything. But yet we give ourselves away to likes and follows so that and mentions so that, that we can know for a fact that we really do have company. We have friends. We have community. When really God has said, I'm with you always. I'll never leave you forsaken. What are we giving ourselves to? What are we craving that we're asking something else to satisfy that God has said, I'm the only one who can meet that need? What's your bread? What is your bread? What's my bread? What do I think if I just get a little bit more of that, I won't have any more need? Because what we see in this text is, listen, it will not satisfy. It will not satisfy. It will not bring you what you think you crave. And Jesus alerts us to that fact. Let's move to the second temptation. It starts in verse 5. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Now, this is a weird event. It's an apocalyptic event. In other words, it's in the genre of the visions that Daniel or Ezekiel or John will see in the scriptures. Luke doesn't explain how this happens, but Jesus is taken up by the devil and somehow he's able to see all the kingdoms of the world at one time. He sees their glory. So if you can imagine this with me, it's like you might think about, uh, you might see the architecture of Egypt. Or you might see the, the, the military might of, of Sparta. Or you might see the, 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 the worldly wisdom of Athens. Or you might see the, the political might of Rome. We might fast forward to the 1800s. We might see the, 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 the navy of Great Britain. Or you might see the capitalism of the United States. And what the devil says is this glory, all this power, all this influence, all this control, all this authority has been given to me. And I can give it out to whoever I want. So if you bow down to me, it'll be yours. What's the temptation here? The temptation is chase glory. Chase it. Chase glory. But what's fascinating here is that Satan is a liar. He's a liar. I mean, in 1 John 5.19, John tells us, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So Satan's been given some authority, but all of his authority is delegated authority. It is clearly delegated in the book of Luke. Because over and over again, we're going to read over the next few months, is that he's going to cast out demons and tell them to shut up. And they can't do anything about it. They don't have the authority that he has. Jesus has all the power. So when he says, it's been given to me and I'm going to give it to you, he's lying. It's not his to give. And in fact, he's making Jesus question again, are you loved by God? Because if he really loved you, he would give you this glory. Now, Jesus knows, and if we're... If we're we're competent in the scriptures, we know as well that Jesus is going to be given all the glory. In Psalm chapter 2, verse 8, 
We hear this messianic figure who is Christ say, ask of me, or, or the father say of this messianic figure, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. If we go over to the book of Daniel, we, we, we hear talk of this messianic king. It says, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. This is what's going to happen with the with a Christ, the Son of God. He's going to be given all glory from his Father, not from Satan. And Jesus is equipped with the Scriptures to know that this is a lie. This is, who are you trying to fool? I am the Word of God. And so Jesus goes back to Deuteronomy to show us again that he succeeds where God's people have failed. And he says, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Now, in the context of Deuteronomy chapter six, this is given as, again, uh, Moses is about to enter the, or about to send the children of Israel into the promised land. They're going away from Mount, Mount Horeb and they're going toward the promised land. And he's recounting all the things that God has done for them. And in this text, we have the famous greatest commandment that God gives, which is that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. In, in, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. And if we skip down in our passage, what we find is we see uh, in verses 12 and 13, Moses saying these words to the people of God. He says, take care lest you forget the Lord. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. What Moses was telling the people was that God has met every need that you had, and even the ones you didn't even know you had, so you can trust him. He's bringing you to a good land. And when you get there, you're going to eat good. You're going to make some money. You're going to have fame in the entire world because of your God who has provided for you. And you might be tempted to forget that it is me who brought you here. So you're going to have glory, but it's a glory you got from me. So I want you to walk in my commandments. I want you to walk in, in, in the fear of me, not in the fear of anything else. That's going to sustain you. And Jesus here quotes that verse says, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Satan is calling him to an idolatry to give his allegiance to someone else. And Jesus is rightly correcting that with the word of God and saying, listen, you think you know, but you have no idea that the one who is worthy of worship is the one I worship. He's the only one that I serve. He's the one I listen to. Let me ask you, family. Question I'm asking myself, which is this one, which is, where are we chasing glory? Where are we looking for fame? Where are we looking for influence? Where are we looking for reputation? Are we looking to get our fame? Are we looking to get our acceptance? Looking to get our, our, our influence from the hand of God? Or from some manipulation of circumstances? Because if we're looking for it from anywhere else but God, we might find we're trying to make a deal with Satan. In your work, if you start chasing a name for yourself, you might find yourself making a deal with Satan.
If you're a politician, want to make a name for yourself, you might find yourself making a deal with Satan. You came into it for the people, but you never oppressed on the poor. If you chase glory, if you chase your name, you're not going to end up following God. You're going to end up following Satan. And let me give you a promise that will remind us that we don't have to chase glory. In a few chapters, in Luke chapter 12, Jesus is going to tell us this. He's going to say, have no fear, little flock. For it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He says, you are my children. You are my sheep. You are the heirs of the eternal inheritance. Don't look for your glory anywhere else. You don't need what they got. You already have what they're offering. So trust me. And Jesus alerts us to that fact. We don't need what the world or what Satan is offering. Let's go to the third temptation. Verse 9. He took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Satan gets smart, tries to. He says, All right, you called me. Called my bluff. I'm going to give you the word. Psalm 91. He says, he's going to command his angels concerning you. He'll guard you. Jump off this, jump off this temple. And uh, uh, he'll protect you. What's the temptation here? I think the temptation here is unbelief. Are you going to trust God's love for you? Or are you going to ask God to prove his love for you? What are you asking God to prove? And Jesus responds here with another verse out of Deuteronomy chapter 6, in which he says, you should not put the Lord your God to the test. It says the children of Israel were testing God, grumbling, complaining, saying, are you really going to prove that you love us? You rescued us? Sure. You led us? Sure. But right now, in this moment, I'm not confident. So you need to prove it again that you really love me. Prove it again. Prove it again. Prove it again. Listen, married folk. If every day you come home and your spouse says, I know you said you love me back 5, 10, 16, 27 years ago. You want me to believe it, man? Prove it again. Prove it again. Prove it again. How healthy is that marriage going to be? I'm thinking probably not. Why? Because marriage is based on a covenant of trust. And if we lose that covenant of trust, then we've lost really everything. Love can't grow without trust. And what God has called his people to is to a belief. He's done plenty to already prove his love for us. 
And he wants us to, to, to rely on that. He says, the righteous will actually will, will live by faith. They'll live by trust. They'll live believing. And in fact, theologians throughout history, especially, I should say, Christian theologians throughout history, have this phrase they use, they talk about doing theology, and that phrase is, we're doing, what we're saying is, is that faith is seeking understanding. And what they're saying is that if you really want to understand who God is, if you want to understand the nature of God, the starting place is faith. The starting place is belief. There's some things you can't understand unless you've already taken a step of dependence. Some things you're never actually going to fully get or grasp or comprehend until you take that step. Until you jump in. But if you jump in, wonder and glory and beauty will be yours. You'll see the love of God. You'll see the beauty of God. You'll see his, his nature, his faith seeking understanding. And listen, church, we have so many opportunities to, 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 to question the love of God. We might walk through the wilderness and, and it might make us question. If we look at our circumstances, we might start to question if God loves us. But let me just tell you, family, that where Luke is going to take us in this book is through the wilderness, down the road to Jerusalem, through Pilate's hands, down the road to Golgotha, and onto a cross, where Jesus is going to prove once and for all that he absolutely, desperately, intimately, and boldly loves sinners who are totally undeserving of his love. And in, in, in that work, in that event, in that work of Christ, we find confidence to trust him through every other situation. God gives us, eye, God gives us eyes to see what we wouldn't see apart from your love. And what Jesus tells Satan is, listen, he's already proven his love for me. You weren't there in the foundation of the world. You weren't there in eternity in the communion with the Father and the Holy Spirit. You weren't there. Don't test my Father and my God. You don't know the half of it. These three temptations of independence, of chasing glory, of unbelief, temptations that we face all the time, isn't that true? To question, does God really love you? Is he really there for you? Will he be there for you? And the truth that Jesus shows us is, yes, he will. He always will. I think it's fascinating to me, and we're going to see more of this probably next week, but Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit, and he's led, in the, he's led into the wilderness in the Holy Spirit. And he's hungry. He's vulnerable. But notice, if you have your Bibles, notice how he comes out. The verse right after our verse says, he comes out of the wilderness in the power of the Holy Spirit. 
God leads him through the wilderness to get power for the rest of his ministry. To see by the word of God that he is absolutely loved by his father. The lies of Satan and temptations of Satan are are just that. They're lies. And he gives us confidence for walking through the wilderness. Morgan and I are, are reading a parenting book together. And one of the things that stood out from this book is something I want to use to conclude our sermon today. I think you'll find fascinating. I know I do. Something that the author of this book says about the human condition. He makes this statement. He says, neurologists say that we are all born looking for someone who is looking for us. Let me say that again. Neurologists say that we are all born looking for someone who is looking for us. It's a beautiful way of describing what happens when the gaze of a newborn meets the gaze of his mother, or uh, meets the gaze of a mother. Interpersonal neurology suggests that this moment is indeed as staggering as we feel it is. In this moment, two brains are changing each other. No matter the trauma of birth, in this first look, both of them feel the same. Here is the one I've been looking for. He goes on to say, I would suggest that we all go through the rest of our lives in different iterations of this moment. Now, this is in a section of the book in which in which the author is recommending as a habit. He's recommending to make a habit of looking at the scriptures before looking at your smartphone. That's what he's talking about. And he says, each morning we wake up looking for someone who is looking for us. We are hungry for the gaze of someone who loves us. We will look for it everywhere and anywhere. He writes, the human condition is is to be uncertain about our identity. And because we are not sure who we are, when we look at emails or social media, our tired hearts cannot help but look to see if there is someone there to fill that void. This is why we can so easily turn responding to work emails into ways to justify our sense of self-worth. Or turn scrolling social media into liturgies of comparison. We are looking for someone who is looking for us. The problem is we will never find that in the screen. I find the author's comments convicting. Where do we go to try to find identity when our hearts are sad? Where do I go to try to find identity when my heart is tired and I want a dopamine hit of self-worth. Do I go to Facebook? Do I go to sex? Do I go to productivity? Where do you go? Do you go to TikTok? Do you go to Fortnite? Do you go to work? Do you go to food? Do you go to the gym? Do you go to some pet sin? Jesus shows us, what Jesus shows us is that regardless of how you feel when you wake up each morning, the truth is that you are loved more than you can imagine. When you're faced with the temptation of independence, you are loved more than you can imagine. When you're faced with the temptation of chasing glory, you are loved more than you can imagine. When you're faced with the temptation, when you're faced with the temptation, mine went blank, y'all, of unbelief, you can know you are loved more than you can imagine. Why was Jesus led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil so he could rescue us from being spellbound and condemned by the devil's lie? 
Jesus wasn't phased by that slanderous lie. He went in full of the Holy Spirit. He came out in the power of the Holy Spirit. And for all those who have trusted in Christ, we went in with him and we came out with him. And so we share in his victory. We don't have to be spellbound anymore. We don't have to keep succumbing to the lie that God doesn't love us. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, he desperately loves you. And you can't earn it. And you don't have to. If you just say yes to Jesus, yes to his lordship, yes to him being the boss, he'll give you everything you need. I want, to lead to, I want to go to application. I want to follow the example of Jesus. And I want to encourage you to follow the example of Jesus, family. The devil tried to lure Jesus into questioning his identity, into questioning God's love. But Jesus turned his gaze to the word of God to find truth in the face of slander. And I would encourage you, make a habit of looking to the scriptures before looking at your smartphone. Make a habit of running to truth every morning. Make a habit of looking in the true mirror of God's word every morning instead of the distorted carnival mirror of comparison and envy. Make a habit of letting the spirit remind you of your identity through the word of God instead of adopting the identity that the world wants to give to you. Take that one step further. Make a habit of meditating on the love of Christ all day. Anthony is our youngest son's first name. We named it after, after a desert father named St. Anthony. Anthony, and, and one of the reasons is because Anthony represents the contemplative life, the life focused on meditating and pondering the love of God. And family, I think we need to meditate and ponder the love of God more and more and more all day long. Athanasius wrote a biography of St. Anthony, and in that, he describes the demons who would come to tempt Anthony as very real figures who clothed themselves as people in order to deceive him. And one, at one point, he describes a group of demons who came to, to beat him up. And he says this, he says, Often they would beat me with stripes, and I repeated again and again, Nothing shall separate me from the love of Christ. And at this, they rather fell to beating one another. Now, first of all, the life of Anthony reminds us, and so does Jesus' temptation, that there's more supernatural stuff going on at any one time than any of us are aware of. But second, notice how Athanasius tells that Anthony fought these demons. He says, I repeated again and again. He said it over and over. That's meditation. And what is he meditating on? He's meditating on nothing can separate us from the love of God. That's from Romans 8. 35 through 39, Anthony fights the devil by meditating over and over on the truth that he is a beloved son of God. Nothing, not death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor anything else in all creation can separate him from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. And it can't separate you either. Family, as we walk with the word in the wilderness, let's remember that we are loved. We are cherished. We are cared for. And let's fight the lies with the good word of God. Let's go to God in prayer. Our Father, I thank you so much for the strength and the power that Jesus displayed as the incarnate Son of God who whipped Satan in a moment of hunger And he did it with the word of God. 
I thank you that Jesus is our example, but more than that, I thank you that Jesus is our Savior, who did it when we couldn't, who, who went into the wilderness for us and came out for us so that the enemy can't touch us. He can bark and yell, Lord, and but Lord, I pray you'd help us to see through the lies, to see the truth of your love for us. Help me, help my family believe the truth that we are beloved children of God so we can walk through the wilderness with strength and power. In Christ's name.